This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number eight. Today's special guest, Prescott Locks Lawani. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by the patrons. Everyone gets a bonus episode for free every month, and it's all thanks to the generosity of the patrons. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show, as well as get some other bonuses like voting on episode topics and getting a special community Discord role, I will leave a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into the first segment of the show. On bonus episodes, the first segment slot is usually filled up by the game Buff Debuff. And today will be no different. Buff Debuff is a sort of game or segment where people on the community Discord give me short one-word or single-sentence topics, and I don't really do any research. I kind of just freestyle And I say whether I think they're buffed, which is good or improving or cool, and debuffed, which means maybe it's something that's kind of trending down or not so great. So yeah, let's just jump into the topics. The first topic is jump scares and shock value. And it doesn't surprise me this has come up with uh, Halloween being around. Long-time listeners will know I like Halloween. I did a whole genre study on horror games, and we published that as an episode. So to hear my full thoughts on jump scares and shock value, I would recommend you go uh, listen to that. That's episode 18, for those who are wondering. But my quick reaction to jump scares and shock value is that it's a thing that can be easily overused. I like horror games that build tension and finally pay off with a punchline, and that maybe will be like shock value or jump scares. But you can't just be doing jump scares all the time, like really cheap things that just fly onto the screen. Because in a horror game, and horror in genre, I think the best representatives of those genres, whether it be you know, in video games or movies or whatever, are horror that kind of sticks with you. And jump scares, really cheap ones, don't really stick with you. You just kind of, like, get jumped right away, and then you kind of forget about it. And at the end of the movie or game, you might feel like it was really cheap. And I don't know, if I were to make a game, I wouldn't want to leave my audience feeling like they were cheated. But to make a horror game that was really like kind of struck them to their soul to the point where they were thinking about it later. I think you can really only do that by building tension and through great storytelling and in video games through interesting interaction with the horror. And yeah, I think there's a lot of like, I won't say cheaper, but you know what I mean, more shallow jump scare games that, yeah, they might be scary because they're just, like, preying on your instincts or your natural reaction, but it's not really as deep as something like P.T. uh, by Kojima, which I think is, even though it's only a demo, I think might be my favorite horror game of all time. So, yeah, for that, I'm going to say jump scares and shock value is debuffed. 
of course, when used incorrectly. It can be buffed if it's used uh, sparingly and, like I said, as a punchline or a big payoff to a long tension-building moment. Next, we have using popular models or asset packs. An example given was Kenny Assets. I think this could be really buffed if used in the correct context. I think we've talked about this before as well. I just don't remember which episode, but I, I use the analogy of if you're making a 3D game in a big office building, like you probably don't have to model all the cups and pens and notepads. You can probably just find an asset pack with like that stuff in it. And people aren't really going to care, I don't think. I don't think someone's going to see the cup and say like, oh, wait, isn't that the cup from the other game that I played? <laughs> I just don't think people will even notice. And if they do, um, it's not a huge deal. I think stuff like Kenny Assets can be extremely good for people learning games or hobby developers or even people making game jams um, just because the really high-quality art that looks good is usually pretty easily implemented into your games. And yeah, it can really just speed up the process and make what you're working on look good when maybe your art assets, um, like your personal art skills, aren't as good. kind of can be like a morale booster to work on something that looks good, and it makes it easier for you to show it off. So yeah, I said it was buffed in the right context. Those would be the right context to me. It can be debuffed in the wrong context, and by this I mean like asset store flips. If you don't know what an asset store flip is, it's basically just where you have like cookie cutter pieces of a video game, you put it all together to make a game, and that's your completed project. You see, Steam was really battling these because people were just flipping assets into games in like the matter of a month, and it led to a lot of low quality games, and unfortunately I think it gave Unity kind of a bad reputation because... Unity has a great asset store, and so people were kind of exploiting that to just make really quick and low-quality games with sort of these asset store assets. So in that context, I would say using popular models and just game assets is probably debuffed. So yeah, the short and long, I guess, of that is that if you're using it to supplement your game, it's buffed, or maybe you're using it because you're learning or you're just a hobbyist, if you're using it in the commercial sense to make your entire game out of other assets, that in that case it's definitely debuffed. Next topic is developing for unique consoles like Evercade and Playdate. I, I haven't heard of Evercade, but I know what Playdate is. It's kind of like a little Game Boy and it has a crank, like a fishing reel crank on it. And I'm pretty sure it only offers, like, it doesn't have any color. It's just black and white pixels. Um, it's kind of a cool little handheld console. I would say developing for this would be debuffed. Not in the sense that I don't think it's cool. I do think it's cool. But I think it'll be really hard because the support probably isn't great. And that's just me guessing. Maybe it is great. I don't know anyone who has a Playdate. I don't even know if you can have them. In fact, I saw a game submitted for Let em Dare 49 that looked really interesting to me, but it was for the Playdate. And on there they said uh, the Playdates are not like publicly available, so they don't expect any reviews. So yeah, I think it's a cool like hobby project, but it would be, I think, probably tough to develop for a Playdate. And that's, again, me guessing. I don't know. Maybe it's really easy. But two, there's not 
really anyone with them, so nobody's going to play your game, <laughs> which kind of is rough if you're going to spend all this time making a game and then have no one to play it. So yeah, I think developing for unique sort of fringe consoles like that is debuffed in the sense that you have to like fish where the fish are. But I could see a silver lining of like it's cool to develop for something with a fishing reel crank because no other console has that and so you can do like really unique and cool game ideas. So maybe there's a silver lining to that one, but I would say in general for most devs, it'd be debuffed. The next topic, and I really sort of generalize this one, but it's one that I think it's important to talk about, is making a website for your game for marketing purposes. I think websites for your game are slightly, and I mean very slightly, debuffed. This is mostly because of where the attention of potential people who are going to buy your game is. It's not really the early 2000s anymore where people would like go to specific websites. All the attention is really in like four or five major websites. Like you got YouTube, TikTok, Facebook. It's mostly all social media websites and that's where most people spend their time on the internet. I don't see a lot of people going to specific websites anymore and I think Triple A's maybe have it a little bit easier because they can have like a really professional looking landing page website for your game. But if you're a small indie, I think you should have a website or I shouldn't even really say should. I think you can have a website and it can have some benefits, but if you only have a limited marketing budget and time and effort, I think you're much better off just making stuff for the places that people already are. Instead of trying to get them to go to your website, just make really good YouTube videos, tweets, images to share on social media, and just build your community and buzz through the places and platforms that people already are instead of trying to build a platform on your own website, if that makes sense. So yeah, for that reason, I think a landing page or making a website specifically for your game for indies is slightly, slightly debuffed. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, um, but I would just consider where your time and money is going to be the most valuable. The next topic is using 3D models in 2D space similar to Donkey Kong Country. I really like the way this looks if you can make it look right. And I think I actually like it more in reverse, actually, now that I think about it. I like 2D models in 3D space, kind of like the Paper Mario aesthetic. I think it's one of the, is it Guilty Gear? That uses 3D models, um, but they're made and drawn into perspective where it looks like a 2D almost like anime. And yeah, I think that looks really cool. It requires a lot of technical art skill and like effort to get something like this right. Uh, but when done right, I think it can really make your game stand out. So mixing 3D models in 2D space or 2D models in 3D space, I'm going to say that is slightly buffed. Next topic is starting with sound and specifically starting with sound to help guide your design like your boss design and your game design and stuff like that using sound is sort of like a key almost concept art um i think this is interesting but i would say it's debuffed it's not something i would personally go for now i would say you could 
try and like add sound to your concept art. And that might really help you get the mood and the atmosphere of the game right. And actually using sound in combination with concept art, I'm going to say that's buffed because that'll really help you sort of convey the mood and atmosphere you're going for. But trying to game design from sound, I think, is um, pretty difficult. And yeah, I, maybe it's just because of the way I make games, I usually make sound last. It just seems like it'd be easier to describe the sounds you want to go with the game rather than the game you want to go with the sound, if that makes sense. So yeah, I would say starting with sound specifically, uh, that's debuffed in my opinion. Um, mix it with your concept art, and that can be a cool way to help convey the mood and atmosphere you're looking for, and I would say that's slightly buffed. And the last topic for today is third-person tank controls. Um, this was this topic was brought up in the context of Resident Evil. I think third-person tank controls, which if you don't know what I mean by that is, think about the old Resident Evil games. You have like a fixed camera third-person. Like instead of the camera being behind the player and moving with the player, it's like up in the corner of the room and it your player moves independent from the camera, so it kind of moves like a tank. I think this control scheme is debuffed, and I think it's a relic of a bygone era. I think it was just too hard back in the day to have a dynamic moving camera, um, not have it clipped through walls and all that, but we have really great tools nowadays for doing that, and I think it's why you don't see any games really with third-person tank controls anymore because it's one of those things that was just a restriction of the past technology, and it's not one of those things where, like, the way they did it in the past was better than the way we do it now. I think it's actually the opposite. This is one of the good examples of technology actually allowing us to make better creative experiences instead of the other way around. So, yeah, I would say third-person tank controls was with the fixed camera like old Resident Evil games is debuffed. And that's going to do it for today's Buff Debuff. I really like this segment. It's really fun to kind of just freestyle topics. Um, and I'm not always right. In fact, <laughs> I am wrong sometimes on a lot of these things because, well, really they're subjective. Some of them are subjective opinions. And so if you disagree with anything I said in Buff Debuff, please come on to the community Discord. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes or tweet me at underscore Zachavelli underscore and let's talk about it. Maybe you are a huge fan of Resident Evil third person tank controls and you think it's a slept on controller scheme. Please reach out to me because I want to know the benefits. So yeah, with that out of the way, let's move on over to the second segment of the show, which is always a key thought from a special guest. Today's special guest is Prescott Lox-Lawani, who has actually been a longtime community member. And um, yeah, I found myself in a position where I needed an emergency guest for this month's show. And uh, yeah, Lox stepped up and offered to do it, and I was really, really pleased with what he came up with. His keynote has great thoughts about perfectionism and really going for it as a game dev, and it's inspiring to hear his journey so far as a game dev, but I won't spoil any more of it for you. I'll let him tell you himself. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 
Prescott Locks Lawani. Hello, this is Prescott Locks Lawani. I'd like to thank Zachavelli for allowing me to be his guest on this podcast. I've been listening to the Game Dev Field Guide since back when Frog Legs was winning all the challenges. I'm also a Patreon, so it's an honor to be a part of an actual episode. A little bit about myself, in terms of games anyway. I'm a game design and development teacher at Richland College in Dallas. I'm teaching VFX, rigging and animation, and project development. I'm also a game design and development teacher at streetcode.org. I'm teaching junior intro to code and will teach a future game development course to underrepresented children. I'm also a game programmer for Lunar Fall, making and hopefully released by now a game called The Mysterious Misadventures of Molly and Mordecai. And I am the CEO and sole proprietor of Padlocks Technologies, currently making a game called Locks the Thief, which listed on Steam now. In other words, I am very, very busy. But that is good. It is always good to stay busy, especially when you're young. That way, your accomplishments will take care of you when you're older. What I'm here to talk about today is the art of going for it. I'll be discussing why going for it gives you a 100% chance of results, perfectionism is the killer of creativity, and some examples from my life. One of the toughest obstacles for game developers and designers is imposter syndrome. The thought of thinking you aren't good enough for the role you're applying for or the role you already have. But let me debunk this right here. Most honest developers will tell you that they look up information on Google to solve an issue that they can't figure out. A search on Google or YouTube or your favorite programming book or the documentation of the software you're using will get you past that hurdle real quick. One thing I tell my students is Google is your friend, and professional game devs love it when you use this phrase. It was one of the phrases I used when applying for street code, and the interviewers just laughed because it is true. No one knows everything, so thinking you're an imposter for not knowing something is not logical. In fact, me being a teacher, I still had to look up some things for myself. Some game devs, even big ones you know and love, don't even understand programming or design, but they know how to find what they're looking for, and they make great games because of it. So in my opinion, most of us don't know what we're doing, but that doesn't mean we aren't good enough. It just means we need to develop our research skills. I'm a 2008 college graduate with a bachelor's in art and technology. Most people say don't go to college and learn game development all on your own. But if you don't know how to learn on your own, college is perfectly fine. For game design and development, I wouldn't suggest an expensive university where you'll rack up like $70,000 in student loan debt. If you have a scholarship, by all means, go to the university. But if not, there's nothing wrong with going to a community college. Don't let mainstream media or your friends fool you. You can still get the skills you need, with structure better than finding everything on your own, at a price you can or eventually will afford with less time and bureaucracy. The schools I teach at are a community college and a nonprofit, so we are dedicated to helping people as opposed to just getting the check, teaching a class of 100 plus students at once, and letting them slip through the cracks. Going for it gives you a 100% chance of getting a result. You might get a job or finish a project, or you might not get a job or throw your project away. I didn't say it'd be a 100% positive result. I said a 100% result. But it is something. Not trying gives you a 100% of nothing. And like my mother always said, 
Every disappointment is a blessing. You will learn from those setbacks and improve yourself for the next task, whether that be a new job or a new project or anything else you are focusing on. Learn from every disappointment and don't give up. Keep going for it. In spring of 2019, I went to Richland College to learn game development because my university degree didn't get me the job in the field for a staggering 11 years. One of my courses was taught by the head of the game department, Christopher Curra. I showcased my skills on accident because a student sitting next to me kept asking me questions and I had to constantly help her. Fortunately for me, we were sitting right next to Chris. One day, I happened to email him asking him if he knew anywhere I could get a job. I have a bachelor's degree but can never find anything, I told him. And he, knowing what I was capable of from seeing me help that student, offered me a job as a teacher at Richland. So I went from student to adjunct professor in a matter of months. I've been there since August 2019 and I love it. There's a lot of variety in the types of courses and students I teach and I learn something new every day. In 2021, he offered me a job with the indie team Lunar Fall and we've been working on a project that I hope is coming out this Halloween. The project is The Mysterious Misadventures of Molly and Mordecai. It is great. The team's talent is tremendous. It kind of reminds me of a 3D Donkey Kong Country. It will hopefully be out before Halloween. So by the time you hear this episode, it should be out on Epic Games. With the motivation of these jobs, I started applying for more game jobs, never letting negative outcomes slow me down. I haven't gotten anything yet, probably not enough experience, but I keep trying, and I finally thought, hey, instead of looking for a job making games, I have two years experience teaching games, so I started applying for game instructor jobs, and that's when I found Street Code, a California-based nonprofit school that teaches underrepresented children. It spoke to me so much because that was basically me. I'm a black game developer and it is that much harder for us than our counterparts. Only 1% of game developers are black or Latino, so I thought it would be a good idea to teach some kids like me to help pave a better future. Our options are usually limited and the odds are stacked against us, and since I'm hopefully growing into a success story, I want to help others get to that point early. Recently, someone contacted me to ask about my availability as a Unity developer. I did the interview and didn't quite get it, but I learned what they were looking for, so now I have a list of the programming concepts I'm not as fluent with, and I will learn and be ready for the next interview. I took these chances without giving up. It was a good change, and my girlfriend and everyone in my family is proud of me for making that change. And who knows, maybe one day I'll become a full-time game developer, but if not, I'm perfectly fine teaching game design and development to the Earth's future. So just do it, and never know what could happen. Never stop learning and looking stuff up, and believe in yourself. Another tough obstacle is the thought of perfectionism. Being in my position, I know a boatload of developers and designers, way talented, even more than me, but they don't have any released games or they've been making the same game for over five years, and they may either trash it or be working on it forever. It's their dream game. Wow, sounds crazy, right? Well, most devs are in this position. Why? Because they want their game to be quote-unquote perfect. They won't release it unless they feel it's the greatest thing ever. And what is crazy is they don't know how great it is because it's locked up tight on their computer. No one else has tested or even seen their game. 
It is in the hands of a brilliant person who just doesn't know the whole process of game development. I know quite a bit about games. I've been playing since the Nintendo Entertainment System, that's the NES. I was born a month before the first Zelda came out. I try all kinds of game genres and platforms, and I know a lot of different parts of the job, like 2D and 3D, programming, level design, concept art, sound and music, marketing, business and budget, the list goes on and on. Perfectionism is the killer to creativity, like John Somez would say, and so many developers and designers go through this. Now would be a good time to shamelessly plug again. I'm making my first commercial game called Lux the Thief. That's Lux with an E. I announced the Steam page this month, which listed on Steam now. It's been through many iterations, but I eventually found what I want to try and I'm sticking to it. Most of the core mechanics are done, and I'm not letting feature creep get to me. Most that is left is to finish some mechanics, build the levels, and make the cutscenes. It is by no means perfect, but I find what I have so far to be very fun, so I'm going to release it. It is my first game, and no one knows me in the industry, so it might not make a great big splash. But I'm going to make sure it looks and feels fun, even if I had to save up money to hire an artist in programming to improve on my style. Whether it does really well or not, I'll work on my second game after a short break of no game development. So, I'm just going for it and I'm not letting perfectionism block my path. I'm just one guy so I know I can't make a AAA game without basically knowing how to asset flip. And that is just dirty. Most game developers will tell you their first game didn't do well and it gave them the experience they needed. Two people I like to follow are Thomas Brush and David Wheel, who are pretty popular in the indie game dev scene, but their first games didn't do that well. They learned from it, they improved their styles, and now they're making six-figure range when they make games. And people look forward to their games now, because they just went for it. They didn't try to make it perfect, just fun games that spoke to the public. So I'm following their lead and getting my first game done as soon as possible. You should do the same if you're making a game. Don't bog yourself down and don't take too long. Just make something fun and get your name or your company name out there. Mine is Padlocks Technologies. Work smart and get things done, like me getting this podcast done. And don't burn bridges and don't break promises. If you tell someone you're going to do something for them, do it, because you never know where they or you are going to end up in the future. And sometimes it's okay to take a while. Decoy Games, the creators of Swim Sanity, said it took the game 10 years to finish. But, unlike most developers, there was a reason. Like Lox the Thief, it went through many iterations, which is fine, most games do that. But they also spent a lot of time doing things for the game that a lot of developers don't do for their games. Which includes marketing and going to game conferences. They became well known long before they released the game. People are seen with the shark fin hats at the conferences and many other cool items. They budgeted properly. They even worked full-time jobs and f- to fund the game. They made it. It's fun, original, and successful. It is multi and cross-platform, and they don't owe anyone anything, like a publisher or anything like that. So taking 10 years to do that works, but taking 10 years just working on art and code where no one knows who you are the whole time, is a recipe for failure. Another good company is William Games, the creators of Last Soul. They are a huge community, and they don't seem capable of burnout. They are always hustling, always messaging their members on Discord, and always active in responding to their people. 
Their game had 10% of their Kickstarter funded in 24 hours, so I'm pretty sure it's going to make it. The game is great and fun, and it's going to be amazing. That's another thing you want to follow. There are multiple ways of going for it in game development. Don't put yourself in a bubble. Learn from the masters. Do your research. But most importantly, go for it or you won't have your results. Before I go, I'd like to give some shout outs. Uh, first of all, to Zachavelli, Chris Cura, Decoy Games, Thomas Brush, David Well, William Games, Sean Hawk, It's Moxie, Black in Gaming, Streetcode.org, Mr. Taff, Lunar Fall, Dev Squad, My Girlfriend Jamie, aka Butterfly the Muse, aka Creative Reflex, who always believed in me. The second she saw my game that I made in an RPG maker, she said, you should be doing this, and I've been off to the races. My family, my friends, and everyone who supports me on social media in real life. Thanks. And once again, I'm Prescott Lakshawani, and if you aren't doing it, you aren't doing anything. And there you have it. A key thought from Prescott Lakshawani. I really enjoyed this thought. I think the ideas about perfectionism and how it sort of almost impedes progress is so true. That's basically what described my game dev career from like 2015 to 2019. I was just making a lot of prototypes or even like unpolished games um, and I was waiting for them to be perfect or I was not going to show them to anyone until they were perfect and I ultimately never released any of them because yeah it was just perfectionism kind of had me I don't know like locked up paralyzed maybe even is the right word so yeah those thoughts about perfectionism really spoke to me and uh, now of course I put things out um, a lot more frequently than I did and it's really transformed my career so yes big thank you to Prescott I will have links to the things he mentioned in the show notes including his game locks the thief um, you can wishlist it on Steam I'll have that in the show notes or you can just go on Steam and look up Locks the Thief. You will find it. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Zachavilli underscore. And I'm on the community Discord every day where you can also reach out to me. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.